chapter 2 this morning. You know, before we get started this morning, I got to take a picture. <laughs> All right, everybody look at me and smile. Smile. Come on, Manuel. Don't look so sour. <laughs> smile. Clean the lens for a better shot. Hold on just a second. <laughs> Try that again. Man, I can't get everybody. There we go. All right, everybody smile. All right. Oh, man. All right, Holly, smile. Here, I'll get a close-up of Holly. <laughs> you know, um, This will probably never happen again, and that's why I wanted to get a picture. I, it's, uh, it's incredible. I mean, I w I've been so looking forward to this. I haven't seen Scott in forever, and Manuel, Scott and I, and Manuel and I, when we were in high school, I spent more times with them than I did with my own girlfriend, and uh, we spent a lot of time together, and we were the best of friends. And uh, Scott was skinny and scrawny back then, and he's a monster now. Good night. I'm, look at the arms on that guy. Unbelievable. But then I got Granny back there and her unknown sister. I didn't even know she had a sister. So, so we were sitting there, and, and her sister said, well, so we had Granny's 95th birthday party. And uh, so we're sitting there, and, and I, I'm like, well, who's the lady sitting next to Granny? And somebody told me, they said, well, that's just, that's her friend. I was like, oh, okay. Well, I didn't think anything about it. A little bit later, somebody's like, well, that's her sister. I said, sister? I didn't even know she had a sister. Oh, yeah, she's one of ten. I didn't know she had other siblings. I've been in this family for 34 years, and I didn't know she had a family other than us. I said, what is this? So, I, so after the crowd kind of dispersed away from Granny, I went over there, and I, I gave her a hug, and she's like, where have you been? I said, I've been here the whole time, Granny, but you were so clogged up with people, I waited. And she looked at her sister, and she said, do you know? And I said, no, she doesn't know, because I didn't know. And she looks at her sister, looks at me, and she goes, because she's jealous. That's why she didn't tell you she had a sister, because I'm the younger sister. I said, makes perfect sense. And then Granny looks at me, and she says, well, you preach hard tomorrow because she needs it. <laughs> and then she looked at me and said, she's jealous. <laughs> so that was the party yesterday. And, and so it's just, man, it's so good to have them sitting here today. So obviously, as you look at Granny and her sister, uh, my wife is going to well outlive me. I mean, her baby said, oh, you're 93, is that right? No, you're 95, your sister. Yeah, see, that's her, she said, I'm much younger than her. She's 93. So obviously, my wife is going to way outlive me, and probably her next husband, too. It's going to be a long list. <laughs> you know, a couple of weeks ago, I, uh, I went into the hospital to have surgery, and uh, nothing major. I had carpal tunnel surgery. I, I had the first one done a couple of years ago, and, and so I, I had to go in and have uh, my left hand done. And as I'm in the hospital, every single person uh, that works for the hospital who comes in and has to deal with me, every single person asks me the same questions, every single one of them. When they come in, they would first, they would call me by name, Bobby. And they would say, they, they'd come in like a question. They would say, Bobby? And I would say, yes. And they'd say, what's your last name? I said, Paige. And they would say, what are you here for? I said, carpal tunnel surgery. They said, which hand? I said, the left hand. Every single person. 
And, of course, while they're doing it, they're looking at their paper. And the reason they do that is to make sure they've got the right person and to make sure that I don't go in for a uh, uh, carpal tunnel surgery and end up with a lobotomy somewhere. And so they just want to make sure and make sure and make sure and make sure that they have the right person. And so they ask the same questions over and over and over again because that they have to put all of those people or all of those things together to make sure that I am who I say that I am and I'm there for the right reason. And so if you didn't know me, if you didn't know who I was, you didn't know where I came, you didn't know anything about you, and somebody handed you a list, and they said, if you want to find Bobby Page, here are four things you can ask him that will 100% make sure that you have the right person. So number one, I was born in Newton, Kansas. Other than that time, never been there, don't know anything about it. Newton, Kansas, that's what it says on my birth certificate. I was born in Newton, Kansas. So number one is not enough. That alone is not enough to make sure you have the right person because I'm sure there were many babies born in Newton, Kansas. So number two, from Newton, Kansas, I went to Springfield, Missouri. So now the odds that you might have had that you might find the right person is uh, is going increasing, right? That you found the right person, Newton, Kansas, and then moved to uh, Springfield, Missouri. But you know, many babies born in Newton, Kansas. Springfield's kind of a popular place. Yeah, maybe there's a possibility that that a ba- someone else could have been born in Newton, Kansas, and then moved to Springfield, Missouri. So let's add a third one to it. Newton, Kansas, Springfield, Missouri, and then we move to Mansfield, Missouri. Oh, nobody moves to Mansfield on purpose. Nobody. I'm telling you, astronomically, if somebody was to tell you I I was born in Newton, Kansas, from there to Springfield, Missouri, from there to Mansfield, Missouri, you found the right guy. Because nobody else is going to do that route. Nobody else is going to take that path. There is no way. But I'm going to add a fourth to you. And this one will seal the deal. You will know beyond a shadow of a doubt that I am who I say I am. Newton, Kansas. Springfield, Missouri. Mansfield, Missouri. Erlong in Germany. That was my my next location. Nobody in the history of this world other than this guy right here lived that sequence. Nobody. Nobody in the world, those four places in the beginning and throughout their life, nobody lived those in that sequence but this guy right here. And so if I can prove to you that I was born in Newton, Kansas, that we went to Springfield, Missouri, that we lived in Mansfield, Missouri, and that we ended up in Erlong in Germany, that seals it. Nobody else can say that but this guy. Nobody else. And you know, this is the thing. Today, Matthew is going to show us four prophecies. Four prophecies about four locations of the Messiah. And he says, listen, when you're looking for the Messiah, I'm going to give you four things about him that only the Messiah is going to fulfill. And there are going to be four locations that have to do with his birth. And he said, through those four locations, I will prove to you that he is the Messiah. I will prove to you that he is the promised son of, the, uh, of God. And so Matthew spends uh, the first four chapters of this book proving that Yahshua is the long-awaited king that was promised from old. Four chapters he spends. First, he proved it by his pedigree. In other words, he looked at the lineage. He looked at, so the Messiah would come, or the king, the promised eternal king, would come through the line of David. And so we looked at that. We looked at the fact that in the line of David, there was a curse. On Joseph's side, there was a curse that said that no one from the seed of this person would be upon the throne forever. 
And so in order for Jesus to be able to be called the king, he had to bypass that curse. And the way he bypassed that curse was God was the father, not Joseph. He was legally the father, so we proved legally that his lineage went back to David. And then we looked at, at Luke that talks about him being through the bloodline of David. And so we made this big circle, and we come right back to the middle, uh, right back to Yahshua, right back to Jesus. And so he proved it by lineage first. And then we're going to day, today, we're going to look at four locations that prophesied and were fulfilled. And then in chapter 3, John the Baptist, the one who cries in the wilderness to prepare the way, declares that Yahshua is the promised Messiah. And then finally, in chapter 4, Satan himself declares that Jesus is the Son of God. So today, let's, let, let's focus upon the prophesied locations. Matthew chapter 2, verse 13 is where we'll start at. And when they were departed, that's speaking of the Magi, the kingmakers, behold, the angel of the Lord appeareth to Joseph in a dream, saying, Arise, take the young child and his mother, and flee into Egypt, and be thou there until I bring thee word, for Herod will seek the young child to destroy him. When he arose, he took the young child and his mother by night. And they departed into Egypt. That's the first place. Or the second place, I'm sorry. And was there until the death of Herod, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken of the Lord by the prophet, saying, Out of Egypt have I called my son. And then Herod, when he saw that he was mocked of the wise men, was exceeding wroth. And he sent forth, and he slew all the children that were in Bethlehem, and in all the coast thereof from two years old and under, according to the time which he had diligently inquired of the wise men. Then was fulfilled that which was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet, saying, In Ramah, there's our third place, was there a voice heard, lamentations and weeping and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children, and would not be comforted because they are not. But when Herod was dead, behold, an angel of the Lord appeareth in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Arise, take the young child and his mother, and go into the land of Israel. For they are dead which sought the young child's life. And he arose, and he took the young child and his mother, and they came into the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus did reign in Judea in the room of his father Herod, he was afraid to go thither. Notwithstanding being warned of God in a dream, he turned aside into the parts of Galilee. And he came and he dwelt in a city called Nazareth, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the prophet. He shall be called a Nazarene. All right, so these four prophecies alone, as I, as I explain to you and you look at the locations of my life, and through the prophecies, there are four locations that will have to do with his birth, his young, as a young child. And those alone are enough to prove that Jesus, Yahshua, is the promised king. Those alone would do it. What are the odds of one man fulfilling all four of those prophecies? Born in Bethlehem, moved to Egypt, during the slaughter of babies in Ramah, and finally a Nazareth. Moved to Nazarene. Moved to Nazareth. The, the odds are way better for you to win the lottery. I promise you. So... I heard a, a, there are over 330 prophecies about the coming Messiah in the First Testament. Over 330 prophecies that 
Yahshua fulfilled. I heard this analogy to describe the odds of one man feeling only eight. And remind you, there's 330. That'd be like you taking 330 things that are specific to this guy right here. And I could say, yep, that's me. Yep, I've done that. Yep, that's me. 330 things in my life. And yet the odds of someone else fulfilling eight of those, fulfilling eight of the, pros- the prophecies, these very specific prophecies, would be like, now listen to this, it would be like covering the state of Texas. Now that's a big t- state. They said the odds would be like covering the state of Texas two foot deep with 50 cent coins, painting one of them red, placing it somewhere in Texas, putting a blindfold on someone and let them come into Texas from any direction. They walk directly to the coin, they bend over and they pick up that coin. That's the odds of one person fulfilling eight of the prophecies. And there were 332 prophecies that speak of the Messiah. That's amazing. There is no number for that. For him to fulfill all, there is no number that you can put on that. Eight of them, think about that. So, these four prophecies alone are very specific. And they eliminate any and all pretenders who want to claim to be the Messiah. If somebody claimed to be the Messiah, if somebody claimed to be the king, the first question you would ask them is, was you born in Bethlehem? If they answer no, they're done. They're discredited. You no need to go any farther. Were you born in Bethlehem? I was born in Bethlehem. Did you go to Egypt? If they say no, it disqualifies them. All the way up through those four prophecies. Born in Bethlehem. Now, we already touched over the past weeks on the birth in Bethlehem. But I want to take a moment and I want to look at the content of the prophecy. It's interesting. When you look at the content where the prophecy comes from, it's pretty interesting how these came out as prophecies. Some of them don't even look like prophecies. And I'll explain that here in a minute. So this prophecy is found in the book of Micah. Now, Micah was a prophet of judgment. And you know, the interesting thing is, as we look at some of these prophets, and as we've gone through our studies in Sunday school class, some of these prophets are hardcore. I mean, they're pulling hair out, they're punching people in the eye. I mean, some of these, these are some rough characters. And Micah, when he comes out and he begins to prophesy, and you got to understand that he's prophesying judgment, and it was aimed directly at false prophets and false teachers within Israel. So listen, listen to this. Listen to Malachi, and this is chapter 2 and verse 1 through 5. What sorrow awaits you who lie awake at night thinking up evil plans? You rise at dawn and you hurry to carry them out simply because you have the power to do so. When you want a piece of land, you find a way to seize it. When you want someone's house, you take it by fraud and violence. You cheat a man of his property, stealing his family's inheritance. But this is what the Lord says. He said, I will reward you evil with evil. You won't be able to pull your neck out of, the, out of the noose. You will no longer walk around proudly, for it will be a terrible time. In that day, your enemies will make fun of you by singing the song of despair about you. We are finished, completely ruined. God has confiscated our land, taking it from us. He has given our fields to those who betrayed us. Others will set your boundaries then, and the Lord's people will have no say and how the land is divided. Such an insignificant, obscure place. Bethlehem. But oh, it gets worse. It gets worse. Listen to to chapter 3, verse 1 through 5. I said, listen, you leaders of Israel. 
You're supposed to know right from wrong. But you are the very ones who hate good and you love evil. You, now listen to this. You skin my people alive and you tear the flesh from their bones. Yes, you eat my people's flesh. You strip off their skin. You break their bones. You chop them up like meat for the cooking pot. And then you beg the Lord for help in times of trouble. Do you really expect him to answer? After all the evil you've done, he won't even look at you. This is what the Lord says. He says, you false prophets are leading my people astray. You promise peace for those who give you food, but you declare war on those who refuse to feed you. You see, those are the crimes. Here's the judgment, Micah chapter 3, verse 6 and 8. Now, the night will close around you, cutting off your visions. Darkness will cover you, putting an end to your predictions. The sun will set for your prophets, and your day will come to an end. And then your seers will be put to shame, and the fortune tellers will be disgraced, and you will cover your faces because there is no answer from God. But as for me... I am filled with power with the Spirit of the Lord. I am filled with justice and strength to bodily, to boldly declare Israel's sin and rebellion. Micah says, I have the Holy Spirit in me, given me the power, given me the will, given me the to-do to tell you, you guys are wrong. And judgment is going to fall on you. And then after he finishes with the judgment, he moves to a time in the future where there will come a true ruler, a true king, one who will come in truth. In chapter 4, he looks at the future reign of the Lord and the return of Israel out of exile. And then in 5.2, he makes a very specific prophecy, Micah 5.2. But as for you, Bethlehem Euphrates, too little to be among the clans of Judah. From you one will come forth for me to be ruler in Israel. His times of coming forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. So out of Micah and out of all the judgment and out of all the fiery preaching that he did, he stops and he says, but there's a day coming. There's a day coming when one will come who will rule who is from eternity. He will come. He said that little town, that little insignificant place is called Bethlehem. The smallest of all of the, the villages, of all the places, of all the thousand places we could have chosen, Bethlehem is where he says he would be born. But isn't that just like Jehovah? Isn't it just like God to choose the insignificant to choose the one that, that seems like nobody else would want to be a part of. Why Bethlehem? But that's how God works. He takes the one that, that thinks that they could never be used, and he uses them, and he uses them in powerful ways. Verse 13 says, and when they were departed, behold, the angel of the Lord appeareth to Joseph in a dream, saying, Arise, and take the young child and his mother, and flee into Egypt. And be thou there until I bring thee word, for Herod will seek the young child to destroy him. When he arose, he took the young child and his mother by night, and he departed into Egypt, and was there until the death of Herod, that it might be fulfilled, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken of the Lord by the prophet, saying, Out of Egypt... Have I called my son? Egypt. So from Bethlehem, it says the king will go to Egypt. And Joseph was tell, told by this angel in the dream. And mind you, this isn't like a normal dream. It isn't like you get up and the next morning you go, man, I had a weird dream last night. This was real. Somehow, someway, in this dream, there was a reality that he was standing before an angel, and an angel says, you need to get the boy, and you need to get his mother, and you need to go to Egypt, because Herod is going to try to kill him. And you know, as I was looking at this, it was funny in all of my studies, 
If you ever want to confuse yourself really bad, go to the internet to try to figure something out. I just, I was curious. I thought, well, how far? So they got up in the middle of the night, and, and Joseph got them up, in, it says, in the middle of the night. And that's so that nobody would know they were leaving. They got to get, I mean, they got to get this. He's traveling with a baby. And so he's got to get out of town as quick as he can. So he gets up in the middle. And I'm thinking, well, as he's taking this family, I know how hard it is to travel with kids from here to Sprinkled in the car. So now I'm trying to figure out how far is it for Joseph and Mary to take this baby to get to Egypt. And so I went on the Internet. Holy smokes, the different responses I found on there. I mean, it was anywhere from 40 miles to 75 miles to another 100 miles, so 175 miles, and one place said it was 429 miles. How do you go from 40 miles to 429 miles? It's got to be in there somewhere. All I know is it was a long ways for them to walk. How about that? I Seriously, I couldn't figure it out. I finally I gave up because every place I went was different. I never could figure out how far it was for them to go. But see, this is the thing. There was a place in Egypt that was a sanctuary city for the Jews. It was called Alexandria. Alexander the Great was the one that had named this city because he wanted a city named after himself. But in Alexandria, he said that the Jews could come there and they could live in peace. So it became a sanctuary city uh, for the Jews in, 70, or, or in 40 AD, not long after Jesus had, had been crucified and had, had gone on into heaven. They, the uh, historians say that there was over a million Jews that were living in, in, in Alexandria. So it was a pretty significant group of Jews that had gathered in Alexandria. So a lot of the commentators believe that that was probably the place they had went. I don't know. It doesn't tell us that. Um, and, and, you know, as a matter of fact, all we know about their stay in Egypt is what we read right here. All we know is this. That's it. That's all we know is that they got up in the middle of the night and they went to Egypt. They were told to stay there till the angel told them otherwise and they left. That's all we know. And yet volumes of books have been written about their time in Egypt. There is one book called The Gospel of the Infancy of Our Lord. Oh my goodness. The stories in this book, listen to this, wherever Jesus walked, now mind you, he was, he was probably less than two years old, but everywhere that Jesus walked, idols fell apart. Now that didn't happen when he was an adult. I don't know why it would happen when he was a child. I guess he couldn't control it. One part of it tells that this, this story that Jesus had come up onto a priest who had a three-year-old son who was demon-possessed. Why this three-year-old son was demon-possessed, I don't know. I believe it was the terrible twos carried over. Just saying. I got some of those grandkids. I'm not looking. I'm not pointing any fingers. But if you didn't know, you might think he was demon-possessed. <laughs> At times. But I digress. And then there, it says that Jesus took a part of his swaddling clothes. I don't know if that was his diaper or, or what he was wrapped in, but he took a part of his swaddling clothes. He placed that upon the three-year-old's forehead, and he was delivered of this demon. Amazing. And everywhere that Mary went? Okay, by a show of hands, how many of you finished that? Come on, show me. Let's see. All right, there's a few of you being honest. The rest of you are asleep. No, it isn't, and everywhere that Mary went, the lamb was sure to go. That was not what I was going to say. It says everywhere that Mary went, everyone that looked upon her was healed of any diseases that they had. Mm. Uh, okay, I, I don't know where on, where on earth they come up with all of this. As I said, all we have is what this says. That's it. That's all we know. Everything else is made up stories. Listen to this. And, and not all of it's good. Listen to this story. Uh, Celsus is 
quoted by Origen, the early church father, as asserting this, Jesus having been brought up as an illegitimate child and having served for hire in Egypt and then coming to the knowledge of certain miraculous powers in Egypt, returned thence to his own country and by means of those powers proclaimed himself a god. In other words, he went to Egypt to learn magic. And then he came out and he tricked people into believing he was God by these magic tricks, by this sorcery. And you know what the Talmud says? This is, this is Jewish writings. The Jewish Talmud says this, Ten measures of sorcery descended into the world. Egypt received nine of them, and the rest of the world received one. Now, the Jewish rabbis in the Talmud believed that Egypt was the center of sorcery. And there were many Jews that taught that Jesus went into Egypt when he was young. He learned sorcery. He came back out. And he conned the world into believing he was the Messiah. I mean, they had to explain him away, right? They had to prove that he was not God or, he, or they're in trouble. And so they come up with this idea that Jesus had gone into Egypt, learned the sorcery, came back out, and then tricked the people into believing he was the Messiah. Wow. Now, commentators believe that their stay in Egypt was probably only for a few months. There was just a small period of time that they stayed in Egypt. So I would say he was too young to learn any magic or sorcery by the time. And, you know, I, I look at my grandkids. They, they, he would have been close to the age of, of my two youngest grandbabies here. And uh, Jesse, I can still trick him into thinking I stole his nose. And Lydia doesn't even know she has a nose. So for, him, for them to say that Jesus learned sorcery and to learn magic while he was there, it's a bunch of hoopla is what it is. Now, we're told in verse 15 that the reason they went to Egypt was not for safety. It wasn't for protection, but it was so the prophecy would be fulfilled. The prophecy, and this prophecy comes out of Hosea chapter 11, verse 1. Now, this is the thing. When you understand the book of Hosea, Hosea is a very interesting book. In the book of Hosea, God commanded Hosea to marry a prostitute. It's an odd command, I would say. And he chose a woman by the name of Gomer. First mistake. I, I could never live with a woman named Gomer. Just saying, if, if you know somebody named Gomer, other than Gomer Pyle, that was his first mistake. Now, when you look at it in context and what you see going on, the context is speaking of it when Israel was called out of Egypt some 1,400 years ago. When it talks, he calls Israel my son. And he looks at all of this going on and what's happening in, at the time of Hosea. And, and the reason for this illustration of Hosea marrying this prostitute is that in a literal sense, she was unfaithful. And in a spiritual sense, Israel was unfaithful. And so Hosea understood the pain that he had for his love for Gomer and she was cheating on him, and she was constantly unfaithful to him. And God says, now you understand the pain that I deal with when my people Israel go after idols, when they're unfaithful to me spiritually speaking. And he goes through all of this, and in all of that, he, he takes them back to a time when they were in Egypt, and he says, God loved you so much. Now, there was a time when Gomer had left Hosea, she had gone back to her old ways, and she ended up on the slave block. And Hosea went, and he purchased her back, and he bought her back. 
God told him, he said, you go buy her back, you get her back. And so he paid a price, a high price to get her back. And God says, I paid a high price for my people. There's a time coming. And so Hosea takes him back to a time in Israel. And he said, I love my son. My son was in Egypt and I brought him out of Egypt. Speaking of Israel. Now, Hosea had no idea he was declaring a prophecy when he spoke this. Had no idea that he was, he was prophesying the Messiah coming out of Egypt. And, you know, any serious Bible student, student who had studied Hosea would also not see that prophecy in there. There's really nothing to indicate that that would be a prophecy. Now, what makes it a prophecy? What makes it a prophecy is that Matthew declares it's a prophecy. He's declaring a mystery. We see in the Second Testament it speaks of of the Messiah being a mystery. And so he's revealing this mystery. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he reveals the mystery of this prophecy. This is what we call a type. A type is a nonverbal prediction, no less powerful than a verbal prediction. So Israel's exit out of Egypt is a picture of the Messiah's flight out of Egypt. The son Egypt in Hosea's prophecy is the Messiah in Matthew's bringing out the prophecy of Hosea. Chapter 16. Then Herod, when he saw that he was mocked of the wise men, was as exceeding wroth. And he sent forth and he slew all the children that were in Bethlehem and all the coasts thereof, from two years old and under, according to the time which he had diligently inquired of the wise men. Then was fulfilled. That which was spoken of by Jeremiah the prophet, saying, In Ramah was there a voice heard, lamentations and weeping, and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children, and would not be comforted because they are not. So here we are on the third prophecy. Bethlehem, Egypt, now we have Ramah. Now, The prophecy says that the king will be born in Bethlehem. He will move to Egypt. And then the events that occur in Ramah will happen during the time of his birth. You see, it says that Herod was enraged. That's the word. He was enraged. As a matter of fact, it says that he was out of control. He lost his mind when he thought that, that the... The Magi had lied, had tricked him, had caused him to be a fool. He was enraged. He was out of control. And he ordered that all the babies, he'd done some math and he had diligently spoken to the Magi. And he said, when did you see this star? At what time? How long ago did you see this? They told him a time and he's like, I'm going to make sure I got him. And so he backed it up to two years. I'll make sure. And so every young male under the age of two years old in Bethlehem or in Ramah and in all the surrounding areas were killed, were murdered, were slaughtered. Hmm. And this was prophesied. And this is found in Jeremiah chapter 31 and verse 15. And this is what it says. This is what the Lord says. A voice is heard in Ramah, mourning and great weeping. Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. Now, once again, this is interesting. In context, when you look at what's going on here, this was talking about a time when Israel would be carried away into captivity. You see, Ramah was about five miles north of Jerusalem. 
It was on the border of the northern, northern Israel and southern Judah. This was the place that the Jews would be gathered up for deportation, Ramah. They would be taken into Ramah, and then they would be dispersed out to these pagan lands. You see, this is the idea. Think about this. Rachel was the wife of Jacob, or Israel. She was the mother of Joseph, whose sons were Ephraim and Manasseh. Now, they inhabited the north part. They inhabited Israel. Their descendants were in the northern part of Israel. And Rachel's son, Benjamin, inhabited the southern part, Judah. And so the idea is this. Rachel one time cried. She said, give me children or I will die. That's how she felt. I've got to have children or I'm going to die. And now her children are being gathered up from the north and from the south. They are gathered up into Ramah to be enslaved in the pagan lands. And it says she weeps over her children being enslaved. So Rachel's weeping represented all Jewish women of Jeremiah's time weeping over their enslaved children. And more specifically, the weeping mothers of Bethlehem clutching their lifeless bodies of their murdered sons. Now once again, this is another type. It becomes a prophecy because under the the influence of the Holy Spirit, Matthew says this is a prophecy, speaking of the coming Messiah. You know, Jeremiah does give a prophecy of hope. In verse 16 of that same chapter, this is what he says. But now this is what the Lord says. Do not weep any longer, for I will reward you, says the Lord. Your children will come back to you from the distant land of the enemy. Through all of that judgment, for everything that was going on, Jeremiah says, stop weeping. Because there's a time coming. There's a time coming when you'll be reunited with your children. All right, hang on with me. One more, one more prophecy, and then we'll be done. Verse 19, and when Herod was dead, behold, an angel of the Lord appeareth in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Arise, take the young child and his mother, and go into the land of Israel, for they are dead which sought the young child's life. And he arose, and he took the young child and his mother, and he came into the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus did reign in Judea in the room of his father Herod, he was afraid to go thither, notwithstanding being warned of God in a dream, he turned aside into the parts of Galilee. And he came and he dwelt in a city called Nazareth, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet, he shall be called a Nazarene. Bethlehem, Egypt, Ramah, and now Nazareth. Those are the three prophecies. Those are the three places. <coughs> now, At the beginning, Joseph wasn't told where to go. He wasn't told what part of Israel to go into. You know, you would assume he would go back to Bethlehem or he'd go back to Jerusalem. I mean, this is the, the, the future king. Now listen, just as a side note, wouldn't you be interested to know how Herod died? Herod was a wicked, wicked, wicked man. If you remember, he, he had his mother-in-law murdered. He had his wife murdered. He had two of his sons murdered, or three of his sons murdered. He was a wicked man. Before he died, he had all of these wonderful people, these great people of the city brought in to be killed the moment he died so that all of the people would mourn. He was a wicked man. Listen to how he died. Now, this comes from Josephus. He died of this, ulcerated entrails, that's his, that's his organs, putrefied and maggot-filled organs, constant convulsions, foul breath, and neither physician nor warm bath led to recovery. Fitting, very fitting. 
Now, the statement, they are dead, kind of gives us the idea that it wasn't just Herod that was seeking to kill the child. There was more than one person that was seeking the death of this king. It says they are dead. So regardless of who the others are, they are also dead. They have been taken care of. Maybe they also had maggot-filled organs. Now, he ended up going to Nazareth. And he went to Nazareth because Archelaus, now this was the son of Herod, and you think Herod was wicked. Archelaus was wicked. He was wicked. There was a time uh, when Archelaus was in charge that they had placed a golden eagle over the temple. And there was, there was two teachers, two well-known Jewish teachers uh, uh, named Judas and Matthias, different from what you read in the scriptures. That was kind of, those were common names. But these teachers had gone to the students and they said, are you going to put up with that? Are you going to allow them to put up this symbol of their God over our temple? And so a bunch of the students got together and they went and they climbed up there and they was up there trying to chop this eagle down up on top of the temple. And they were arrested. They were caught and they were arrested. They were taken in for trial. Now the students received light punishments, but the two teachers were killed. They were murdered. And they were well-known and they were well-loved within the Jewish community. And so there was this uprising. They were beginning to stir. And so Archelaus brought in 3,000 Jews and had them murdered, killed them in the streets. Many of them had nothing to do. It, it was during a time of the feast, and so there were many visitors in there, and they gathered up 3,000 of them in the streets, and he murdered them. This was during the time when they were in Egypt. This happened while they were in Egypt. And so now Joseph is coming back, and he hears that, that Archelaus is still in charge, and so now instead of going to Jerusalem or instead of going to Bethlehem, he went on up to Nazareth. Unbeknownst to him, fulfilling a prophecy that he would be called a Nazarene. So, out of curiosity, does anybody know where this prophecy is found in Scripture? Nowhere. Nowhere. No, it's not in Scripture. This prophecy is not found in Scripture. Nowhere... In the First Testament, will you find this prophecy? You know, some prophecies, some sayings, etc. were not written down. She's smiling at me. Some prophecies were not written up. Uh, whether you realize it or not, there are times that, that it was mentioned in the Second Testament... Prophecies that were not written down in the First Testament. This is one of them. It was never written down. But apparently it was common knowledge with the Jews because he mentioned it and they knew what was going on. They knew what was being said. They understood that this was a prophet and, and it wasn't just one prophet. It says the prophet said that he would be called a Nazarene. Why Nazareth? Nazareth was, a, was an awful place. You know, I, I remember when I was a young child. If you were associated with certain towns, you were considered not a very good person. Right? When I lived in Mansfield, those people that lived in the Ava were awful. They were terrible people. Awful. We fought all the time. Where are you from? Ava. Ooh. <laughs> yeah, look where I ended up. But Nazareth was considered a terrible place. The people there were crude. They were violent. And so if somebody ever called you a Nazarene, they, it, was, it was a put down. They were telling you they didn't like you. You were awful. Philip in John 1, 46 said this. He says, can anything good come out of Nazareth? And so why in the world 
Would God choose Nazareth for his son to be raised? Why? In the world would he choose that? To be called a Nazarene, to be put down by that name. But you see, this goes along with another prophecy that spoke of the Messiah. It says he would be despised and forsaken of men. Isaiah 53, 3. Despised and forsaken. It's just another thing that says he was a stinking Nazarene. Can you believe it? A Nazarene. They used to say that may the pagans, the Gentiles, and the Nazarenes be blotted out of the book of life. That's how they felt about Nazareth. And yet, God once again chose the unlikely for his son to be born or to be raised in. So listen. Yeshua is the promised king of Matthew. He is the promised king, and Matthew has proven it by just these four prophecies, not including that, that he went through his genealogy, not including what we're going to look at here in a couple of weeks, but with just these four prophecies, Bethlehem, Egypt, Ramah, and Nazareth is enough to say he is who he claimed to be. He is the Messiah. He is the King of kings. He is the Lord of lords. Would you stand to your feet? If you ever had any doubt. First off, I want to thank all of my family for being here today. What a special day. Now they're all going to come to my house. We're going to have more beans. <laughs> oh, there ain't no beans. <laughs> my wife says, no, no more beans. I don't know what she means by that. Father, we thank you for this wonderful day. And what a great story you have told us. We thank you, Father, that you lie out without any doubt who the Messiah shall be. And we thank you for revealing to us through your prophets, through Matthew, Father, who your son is. Father, I just pray right now that for everyone that is within the sound of my voice, that they understand and they realize that your son is the promised king of kings, the Messiah, the savior of the world. And Father, I pray that they would just place that in their heart. And now, Father, as we conclude this service, I just pray that you would pour out your blessing upon your people. I pray that as we leave this house, Father, you give us rest today and bring us all back one more time. We ask all these things in Yahshua's very precious name. Amen. God bless you. Have a great day.